and welcome to Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond in association with Discover Science and Engineering. I'm Sylvia Leatham and with me in studio today is Trina O'Connell. You can find us online at cybernia.ie, that's S-C-I-B-E-R-N-I-A dot I-E, or download the latest episode from iTunes. And you can email us at podcast at cybernia.ie. This episode of the show is a little bit special. We're looking back at the week that was Science Week. Hundreds of science-related events took place around the country last week, and we're going to be bringing you a few of the highlights. I managed to grab interviews with a Swedish astronaut and a Dublin immunologist, while Trina got involved with food science and squishy circuits. Stay tuned for all this and more. Christer Fugelsang is the only Swedish person to ever go into space. He's visited the International Space Station twice and taken part in five spacewalks. I caught up with him after a public talk he gave as part of Science Week to ask him about his career as an astronaut and about the work that goes on at the International Space Station. Christer, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, I guess I have to ask you first, did you always dream of being an astronaut or is that just where life took you? Well... I certainly always was fascinated by space and loved to travel. And at some point, uh, probably when I was doing my PhD studies, I'd st- studies, I pr- definitely started to think that if there's every chance to go to space, then I will try to take it. But I wasn't so much thinking I have to become an astronaut, more, hey, hey it's a chance to go to space. And suddenly there was a chance. Uh, they were announcing for astronauts, and then, of course, I tried. <laughs> So I believe you actually just saw an ad in the paper. Is that right? Uh, that's right. Well, to be honest, I didn't even see it myself. It was a friend of mine who saw it and kind of told it to me. Uh, after she said he, he told it a bit like a joke, but uh, <laughs> to me it was serious. <laughs> at, at the time you were working as a physicist? Yes, I was working at CERN uh, at the time. And hadn't it been for my friend, I may not ever have heard about it because uh, that was an ad in a Swedish newspaper. Uh, and uh, I was in Switzerland most of the time. Okay, so it was good fortune. Uh, and you've visited the International Space Station twice. Uh, what were you doing up there, and, and how long were you there each time? So the first time, basically building the space station, constructing a worker. Uh, we put a new mo- uh, piece to it on the outside, and we were moving around things on the outside. Uh, and then the second time, the station was almost complete, we brought up a lot of new equipment for inside, mainly. Uh, that was uh, new experiments. Uh, actually, also some spare pieces from the outside because the shuttle would soon retire. It has retired now. And they just want to have all the spare pieces needed. And, and the, the flights, uh, the first one was 13 days, the other one 14 days. Okay. And you've done five spacewalks. I have to ask, how did you feel the first time you went outside the, the space station? Well, you know, the the very first time, the very first moment was uh, kind of strange, not so much because of just doing but things didn't go the way it was supposed to go. And I was, at least that was not my fault that time. Uh, we had to train exactly how to egress the hatch and if my... Uh, the lead spacewalker had been done this before. He went out first, and then he would do some things, and then I would come out, and everything was well-trained. And then he got a problem with his spacesuit, <laughs> which was not possible for him to fix himself. 
So then uh, this ground control suddenly said, well, maybe you then can, Chris, can you go outside and see if you can fix this? So suddenly that was uh, had to kind of improvise and all that. But I was mainly thinking, oh, okay, be careful, hold tight here so you don't glide away and <laughs> concentrate on doing this. Uh, and it was dark, it was uh, pitch dark, it was nighttime, so I didn't see the earth down there. So, I, yeah, you can actually see sometimes the International Space Station from Earth. So I presume you can also see the Earth from the International Space Station. <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, we are not very high up. We are about, uh, th- that time, 350, 360 kilometers up. So uh, most of uh, what you look down is the Earth. Uh, what's fun is that it goes so fast. 90 minutes, you go one orbit around the Earth. And in the meantime, the Earth has turned a little bit. So you see a lot of the Earth during uh, a day, and uh, that's when you feel the Earth is not so big. Yeah, I was going to ask, how does that feel, looking down on the Earth like that? It's uh, marvelous. Uh, and you can, after a while, you see so much and different. And uh, uh, it doesn't look small. It's not like the pictures you may have seen from the Apollo. You see the small Earth, mm-hmm. that, but. This thing, what you go so fast, you are over the South America's jungles and fly over the Atlantic, and 20 minutes later you're over the, 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 the deserts of Sahara, for example. Wow, it sounds amazing. Do you plan to go back in this, into space anytime soon? Well, it was my planning, yes, but unfortunately my boss has said that, no, sorry, I've done your... Uh, because... Uh, we have very few flight opportunities in, in Europe, and uh, now with the shuttle retiring, it's even less opportunities, and we, even, we don't have our own vehicles. So it will be about one European per year for uh, the next, uh, at least the next five, six, seven years. And uh, we are not so many astronauts in Europe, but still there are more than, <laughs> than that I would probably have to wait for. Ten years or so, Nana will be retired until it will be my turn again. Okay. So what work are you doing at the moment then, back on the ground? Since a year and a half, I'm responsible for um, uh, what's called the Science and Application Division uh, in the Human Spaceflight Directorate. And I'm responsible for the scientific program uh, on ISS and also related science in uh, microgravity and uh, human research for prepare humans for exploration, those kind of things. That doesn't mean, unfortunately, that I can do any research myself. I'm a kind of manager, uh, helping the best possible way to select experiments and uh, can define them. And what type of experiments are going on on the ISS and what do they hope to discover? It's a wide field from physics uh, and biology, human physiology, uh, and some looking up in space, some looking down on Earth. What we are typically doing, we, we uh, utilize that we can do experiment without gravity. And that through that we can learn things which we cannot learn on Earth. And those knowledge, that knowledge we can transform into processes in Earth. For example, we can learn uh, properties of a material, which you cannot do that experiment on ground. And when you learn that and you get parameters, we need to do computa- computation, uh, for example. Then you can figure out ways to do better uh, processes for new things on Earth. 
and that has been done in a uh, pro, uh, program called Impress, for example, where they uh, found out how to do a lightweight alloy called titanium aluminum, which is now a big uh, industry thing. Same thing in areas like biology and physiology. We can study things differently and learn, and that eventually we hope can help to get better treatments for people are sick or new medicines and other processes. And Christo's talk was filmed and it should go up online soon on scienceweek.ie, so keep an eye out for that. Now, our next guest also gave a public lecture during Science Week when he spoke about his work in the area of disease prevention. Luke O'Neill is director of the Trinity College Biomedical Sciences Institute and I spoke to him after his talk about immunology, kidney transplants and his view of the anti-vaccine movement. Uh, So Luke O'Neill, your main work is in immunology. What exactly is immunology? Immunology is, as the name suggests, study of the immune system. And the immune system is a very complex process in the body which defends us against infection first and foremost. So bacteria, viruses, parasites, the immune system gets activated and hopefully clears the infection and we get better. So that's the essence of immunology. But equally, it turns out that immunology goes wrong in various situations and there's a whole host of diseases which where the immune system is out of control. And the best example would be rheumatoid arthritis, for instance, when the immune system, for some reason, thinks our joints are foreign and goes in and starts to attack our own joints and destroys them. These are called autoimmune diseases because your body kind of turns on itself. I guess a good analogy is the immune system is there to fight an invader. These autoimmune diseases are like a civil war where, where, where we're fighting our own, our own systems. And the third place is in cancer. So the immune system can recognise tumours as foreign and alien and kill them. And in fact, immunotherapy for cancer turns out to be a very interesting area in terms of cancer treatments. So I guess in essence it's at the core of many diseases, the immune system. What kind of uh, discoveries have you made in your own research yeah, I'm, I, I guess I'm like a car mechanic. Is that what I've, so I go underneath the bonnet and try and find the component parts because we still don't know all the parts of the immune system. And I've been lucky enough in my career to maybe discover four separate component parts which are key for the immune system because obviously it's a bit, very complex machine. And you've got to sense the infection and then trigger a signal to wake up the immune system. We found some of these key signals. And then it turns out that some of these signals are dysfunctional in, in disease. So one signal we found is a product called MAL. And that's a key switch for the immune system. And there's two types of man in human. If you have the wrong type, you've got a higher risk of getting uh, arthritis. So again, we found a key component and then we were able to show when it goes wrong, if you like, it can cause disease. And you mentioned that you're also uh, working in the area of kidney transplant. That's right. So, so that's another classic area of immunology because when you have a transplanted kidney, your immune system rejects that because it's foreign. And that's why if you get one from an identical twin, it's perfect because you're the same genetically. So that doesn't get rejected. Or even a sibling is quite good. But the trouble is not enough kidneys. And many get rejected. And if we can understand more about the rejection process, we could design drugs to stop the rejection process. And one of these key inflammatory proteins, it's called TOL2, uh, drives much of the rejection. And we're now developing agents to block TOL2. And we're hoping that'll help allow kidneys to be taken when, when they're transplanted. Okay. Do you think there's uh, more need for a greater understanding among the general public of disease? There's a great hunger for it. I mean, what I always notice is whenever I give a talk or talk to people, they're really very interested in this because it really is a wonderful area of, of, of interest in terms of scientific discovery and so on. And of course, they get diseases themselves. 
and and the more you know about your enemy, I guess, the more happier you might be and better informed you would be. And because you go to your doctor and he gives you some tablet, you know, and you're kind of taking it on, on his wisdom, there's a huge hunger to understand what that tablet's doing and to understand the disease process. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is it's our job to tell the people because like my, my, many, much of my research is funded by the Irish Taxpayer Science Foundation Ireland. So it's a huge responsibility to take that money in and spend it wisely. So of course we should be telling the people who are funding us what we're doing and try to explain to them why our work is important. Especially in the area of vaccines, there seems to be a backlash against getting vaccinated. Yeah, that stuff annoys us immunologists because it's not there's very bad science. Very bad science behind that. And the worst exam was MMR, measles, causing autism. That was absolute nonsense. So there's no doubt that vaccines are the best discovery for humanity. They save millions and millions of lives for things like polio, you know, TB, all these diseases. Um, now, there is a safety issue. Some of them, they have side effects. Uh, sadly, you'd like them not to have that, but by and large, they're, very, they're as safe as anything else that's out there. And so they're a wonderful boon to humanity. And anybody who's against them, in my view, is non-scientific. Now, if you want to follow someone who hasn't got science behind them, that's your own business. Um, if, they, if they produce scientific evidence to support their claims, as a scientist, you'd be open-minded. You'd listen to them. But there's no science behind anything they're saying. So, so we don't like those, those vaccine <laughs> objectors, really. Okay, it's pretty clear cut. Yep. And finally, what's your opinion of natural remedies in treatment of disease? Well, again, I'm, I'd be open-minded about these because um, uh, people often ask me that if they, that the rheumatoid arthritis, should they take green-lipped muscle or something, you know? And my answer is, if it's cheap and you like it, take it because it won't harm you. So that's the first thing, right? And some people get benefits from some of these things. Um, and, and one or two kind of work a bit. There's no, no two ways about it. Um, again, though, there's a huge onus to prove that they work properly. Very often there's not proper clinical trials done. Uh, I'll give you one very bad example. So about six years ago, the Arthritis Foundation in Ireland contacted me and said, could I analyse this powder? There was a guy going door to door selling a little tube of powder for €30 euro and saying it would cure arthritis. And he was claiming it had certain chemicals in it, a thing called collagen was in it. We analysed that all it was was, was a, a colouring and then some powder and he was making 30 euro a pop. Wow. So there's a fear about charlatans in that area as well. So again, I'm open-minded, uh, but you've got to proceed cautiously is what, is what I would say. Okay, Luke O'Neill, thank you very much. So Trina, I believe that you were involved in some talks over Science Week as well. What were you up to? Indeed I was. Um, on the Friday of Science Week, um, I was the fourth of four talks that were done on the hackerspace with the science bent on them. And on the Saturday, I ran a squishy circuits workshop also oh. in the hackerspace. What is the hackerspace? The hackerspace is really cool. That's what it is for a start. Um, it's a community-run space that's up behind Dublin Castle where people come together to make or create or hack things. So, you know, you could build things. I hang out there a lot for crochet and crafting. Yeah, very um, nice. There's also things like microcontrollers, building little electronics things, um, computer programming. I did a computer programming class there, which is pretty cool. Uh, there's origami, um, all sorts of really interesting workshops. There's one coming up for making Christmas lights that light up, or Christmas tree decorations that light up. It's going to be very exciting. Oh, so it's, it's a space for making and building things, okay. basically. And you were doing a workshop called... Squishy, squishy Circuits. circuits. Now, Squishy they? Circuits is great. It's an educational tool for basically introducing people to electronics. Um, and it's composed of two main ingredients. One is a conductive dough, which is essentially a Play-Doh made with a lot of salt in it. And the this other is the squishy bit. This is the squishy bit. And the other is a slightly less squishy dough, which doesn't conduct electricity. So when you want electricity to go places, you need to make it go places, but you need to also put barriers in its way. Sometimes if you want to divert the electricity through a bulb or through an LED. So 
with a handful of LEDs and batteries and a few kilos of squishy dough I come armed to these workshops and people sit there and they learn how a circuit works how the electricity comes from the battery through the components through the wires or in this case the dough and comes out the other side and you get a little lighting frog or snail or really yucky looking circuit blob that people <laughs> it's art shall we call it oh, but yeah so nice. if you even just google squishy circuits um the lady who developed it in the States, she's a fantastic website with all little interesting tools. So it's, it's fantastic for learning. Okay, that so. sounds great. So that was your that part of, uh, that was one of the things you did in the hackerspace. Yeah, it was great crack. Um, and the night before then, we had 33 people in for the Science Week talks. So we were thrilled. Um, so there was four of us talking. Um, Rose gave a talk about the Natural History Museum. Christian talked about the things he's built in the hackerspace with fire. Check out the videos on tog.ie. And Dave, T-O-G.ie? T-O-G.ie. Okay, Lots of videos of fire and there's some ducks up there at the moment. Check it out. It's cool. Um, and David is an astrophysicist, a solar physicist from Trinity and he gave a talk and then yours truly gave a talk on food science towards the end. Okay. So do you want to elaborate on some of those? Or? Yeah. So Rose's talk was really cool. It covered many things you wouldn't think of the Natural History Museum. You kind of walk in and you go, hey, yeah, the blue whale skeleton's still up top. There's that big deer looking thing at the front. You know, you kind of look in and you think things don't really change in the Natural History Museum. I remember when I was small, it closed there for a few years because of the right. teachers and it reopened. Um, but she was explaining all the interesting things like twice a year, um, some Dutch taxidermists come along with a big van and take away a bunch of specimens and return other specimens. They take them away to clean them and bring them back. Oh, okay. I always wondered uh, yeah. how that happened. And actually. It's, it's really cool. So if you know Spoticus, Spoticus NH, they would have put Spoticus together and cleaned them. Um, it's so, the giraffe in the Natural History Museum. Oh, okay. So we, we okay. got he's to see a video of Spoticus. Yeah, you find him on Twitter at Spoticus NH. Okay. Uh, he's actually a Dutch giraffe. Um, but she was explaining other things, like they have all these collections. What you see out in the thing is 10%. They have a million insects, you know? Loads of bugs and beetles and drawers full of butterflies. And So we don't always get to see everything they no, have. You definitely don't get to see everything they have. But they do rotate things out and they have people having to top up all of the... You know, they're, they're floating in liquids you know they have to top up the alcohol in them every week and it is very very interesting and even things that you wouldn't think about like those new stairs did you know those new stairs can take 12 ton on every step i did not know that yes i'm pretty sure your average school teacher doesn't weigh that but you know (laughs) the average american tourist might well who knows so those those shiny new back stairs and that the cabinet set in there is an original victorian cabinet set it's one of the few remaining in operation in the world you know so the fact that you know we don't spend a lot of money doing up our museum in some ways makes it a museum of a museum which is mm-hmm. very nice so yeah that was really cool she did lovely yeah. photographs as well so if you haven't been to the Naturalist Museum in a while head back in along lads oh, and have yeah. a look so that was Rose Farrell from the from Naturalist, Naturalist Museum, Museum yeah. um, and do you want to tell me about your talk then oh my talk was great so everyone likes food molecular gastronomy. gastronomy so most people think hey it's Heston Blumenthal with the weird things in the kitchen <laughs> and making things that look amazing but I don't know what it is so it's not really what molecular gastronomy is. Molecular gastronomy is basically understanding science, understanding food, and then applying the science to the food. So simple things like understanding. So one of the big things that I did was understanding proteins. And 
we like proteins they're found in everything and you look and you go protein steak yes yummy yummy mm, we like steak that's what I was just thinking um, the non-steak eaters out there might like eggs you say hey they're full of eggs but you know bread is full of protein I did not yeah everyone thinks hey in home ec I was taught that goes into the carbohydrates group but actually the gluten so gluten we're familiar with gluten people with celiac disease mm, don't like don't being like familiar it. with gluten and that's like fair them. enough but it's a protein and it's actually what gives structure to bread so you know this kind of big chewy fibrous network that's gluten protein holding it all together okay. the carbohydrates aren't really well this, the nice carbohydrates you find in bread tend to not be very good for structural stuff but protein is great for it so if you take away the gluten you'll end up with a very kind of soft or floppy bread you know it's, it's not as good so um, if you want to take out the gluten you usually have to replace it with other proteins um, but they protein bread very interesting mm. um, we looked at carbohydrates a little bit you know if you cook them to different temperatures you get toffee or you get caramel or you get fudge depending again temperature dependent um, and one of our favourite places to find carbohydrate we're coming back to the steak oh, so everything ev- comes back to steak everything comes back to steak <laughs> everyone is familiar with these lovely black lines you get on steak oh yes and yeah. every well, well a lot of people would know that it's caused by a thing called the Maillard reaction well I did not know that well now you have it um, and what that is is it's a reaction between the sugars in the steak because there's sugars everywhere it's an energy store and the proteins in the steak, and at about 150, 150 plus, these sugars, certain types of sugars, will fuse with the proteins, and you get this lovely, rich, savoury kind of mmm flavour. Oh, you know, it's very hard to describe. But you need to bring it up to these high temperatures because we did a little bit of science the following day after my talk. So my talk inspired one of the other lads to go down to a very nice butcher's and come back with some pieces of steak. So what we did was we got ourselves a big pot of water and a very good thermometer and heated the pot of water to between 54 and 57 degrees. Oh, were you planning on boiling steak? Not boiling, you'd ruin it. So, you know, the, the, there's different proteins in it. So at 80 degrees is bad. 80 degrees, you never get your steak that hot. Um, so at about 50 degrees, actin will start denaturing. And What's you, actin? So actin That's is one of protein, the proteins, yeah. Okay. And you get this just rare steak. It's starting to go juicy. It's starting to set, but it's not gone fully firm. And then the next, you get to 60 degrees and then your myo, uh, your myoglobin breaks down. So instead of having pink, you've got brown. And this, this is, is the sign. medium rare. This is your oh, medium, medium this is, rare. This is how I like Moving on a little bit. But when you start getting higher than that, when you hit 80 degrees, um, you denature another protein called myosin. So actin and myosin are both contractile proteins. They're proteins that tighten so this is what caused your muscles to go forwards and backwards you know the tightening of these two against each other so by the time the two of them have been denatured and totally tightened you've got this dry hard piece of tough rubber leather stuff right. so basically well we don't we don't boil the steak we try to keep it so what we sat there with our big bucket of water on top of the heater with a very nice thermometer sat in it is we tried to keep it between 54 and 57 so we figured we like steak that's medium rare kind of a little bit more on the rare side mm-hmm. so we did this and we How sat there How long did you keep it at that temperature Well for? this is the fun thing so he was also cooking potatoes making a lovely Gosh, potato gratin in the there, oven yes. amazing oh. Hackerspace is great this is Rob Fitz he's a fantastic chap and so we were sitting there watching the steak and we're going right 
for crying out loud, the potatoes aren't cooking. The potatoes aren't cooking. Why aren't the potatoes cooking? Now, it's one of these dishes that I can never get. But because the steak was being kept at a temperature at which it would never overcook, because it was never getting to the 80 degrees, we were keeping it below 60. It wasn't even starting to brown all that much. Okay. So we kind of said, right, the potatoes are going to take another half hour. Leave the steak. The steak is cooking grand. It's not doing anything. It's just going to sit there. Oh, so you can do that because you're not heat. You see, when normally when you're cooking, you keep applying heat. You keep applying heat. So it's constantly getting hotter and hotter. Whereas we had left our steak equilibrate around the 50 odd degree mark. So it was never going to get hotter. It was never going to cook any more than it was already cooked. Oh, okay. So we just left it there. The juices in the bag were lovely as well, actually. So (laughs) eventually. in a bag. In a bag, yeah, so that the water didn't poach the steak. And uh, yeah, so eventually we decided that the potato was sufficiently done. So we fished the steak out of the bag, out of the water, and uh, seared it quickly on the pan. We couldn't find the blowtorch. But just to get those lovely Maillard reactions on the outside. And uh, yeah, absolutely beautiful dinner last Saturday. Very tasty. fantastic. And Trina, you blog a little bit about food science, don't you? I talk about food and I talk about science at sciencesdelicious.net. Mostly it's cake recipes though. (laughs) Okay. Very nice good. Thanks a million for that. And uh, just on the subject of food, um, I went to a talk earlier in the week by UCD food scientist Dolores O'Riordan and she talked about the importance of colour in food to a big group of secondary school students. And there is more information about that up on our blog right now. That's on cybernia.ie. And also, still on the subject of food, our reporter Marie Boren went to Chagask's Research Centre in County Carlow to find out about the science of the perfect potato. And that that report is also on our blog right now, cybernia.ie. Now we just have time to take a look at some events. Uh, Trina, what's going on around the country? There is plenty going on. On Saturday the 26th of November, the Dublin Skeptics and the Pub will be in their usual haunt of the Lord Edward. That's up by Christchurch. Pop along for discussion of all things sceptical and to meet new sceptical friends. And you can find them on Twitter at Dublin SITP. On Tuesday the 29th of November... Professor Margaret Murnan will be conferred with the Boyle Medal for Scientific Excellence and will give a public lecture about her work. Professor Murnan will discuss the joys of working with scientists from all over the world, sharing the Eureka moment and figuring out how to make laser-like beams of X-rays that can capture the fastest events in our natural world. The evening will commence at 7pm in the RDS Concert Hall. The event is free but advanced booking is essential. See rds.ie for more. At the National Aquarium in Salt Hill on Saturday the 3rd of December from 10am to 1pm there will be a Christmas Critters workshop. Students from 5 to 7 years old will learn about the science of Christmas including how reindeers might fly and do reindeer even like carrots? Afterwards (laughs) the children will help deliver presents to the critters at the aquarium. The workshop will cost €20 and to book or for further details visit nationalaquarium.ie. Ignite Dublin is back for version 8 on Thursday the 8th of December. As always, it'll be hosted in the Science Gallery and promises an entertaining evening of rapid-fire information in the form of five-minute talks. The event starts at 6.30pm and costs €10. Visit sciencegallery.com for bookings. On Friday the 9th of December, Professor Luke Drury will deliver the Royal Irish Academy Biennial McRae Lecture. Celebrating almost 100 years of the study of cosmic rays, Professor Drury will outline a history of the field and also discuss recent discoveries. The talk will take place in the Schrodinger Lecture Theatre in Trinity College from 6pm. For more information and to book, visit ria.ie. And on Monday the 12th of December, Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell will deliver a talk about why Pluto isn't a planet. Jocelyn Bell Burnell discovered the first pulsar in 1967 and plays an active role in encouraging people to have an interest in science. She chaired the astronomical meeting during which 
Pluto was demoted. The talk is organised by astronomy.ie and will be hosted in the Physics Department of Trinity College Dublin. It starts at 8pm and costs €7, euro, €5 euro for concessions. And you can book or find out more at astronomy.ie. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, she's really cool. So definitely that's one of the events that I'm planning on hitting myself. So yeah, I probably will be there myself. There's loads to be doing over Christmas. Well, sorry, shouldn't mention the C word. There's loads to be doing over the coming season. (laughs) Indeed. Thanks a million, Trina. No bother. And that's it for another episode of Cybernia. Thank you very much for listening. And thanks to all our guests and contributors. And a big thanks to Near FM. You can find us online at cybernia.ie or download the latest episode from iTunes. Find us on facebook.com slash cybernia and we're on Twitter as well. And you can always email us at podcast at cybernia.ie. Goodbye.